0: This morning, I would invite you to join me in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter number 4, this morning, Genesis 4. What was life on earth like back in the day? I mean, way back in the day, at the beginning, during the antediluvian period, that is the 1500 years of human history between the fall of man in Genesis 3 and the great flood in Genesis Six, books and books could be written about the many civilizations that developed over the course of 1500 years but all we have are a few chapters here before us in the book of Genesis what we're going to look at this morning and what Jesus said in Matthew 24 when describing the end of time Jesus said this in Matthew 24 as the days of Noah were so also will the coming of the son of man be For as in the days before the flood, the antediluvian period, the 1500 years between Genesis 3 and Genesis 6, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And so it's with interest that we inquire of what life was like before the flood, for it also gives us insights into what Life will be like before the second coming of Jesus, as we read of earlier in our service in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But, but I submit to you this morning that in both cases, then and later, those first and final cultures will invite the judgment of God. So from Genesis 4 verse 16 through Genesis 6 verse 13, I've prepared a message simply titled, Characteristic of First Cultures. Let me pause for prayer, and then we'll look at God's holy word. God in heaven above, we come now to your holy word, the scripture, to read what you've recorded and preserved for us. As we read of then, during the antediluvian period, as we read of what will also be before your second coming, Lord, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding into the, our, our current culture and how we conduct ourselves now. So, Lord, may your spirit be our teacher, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At first glance, you have your Bibles open before you. Genesis 4, verse 16, through chapter 6, verse 13, appear to be little more than a list of genealogies. What can we gain this morning from a list of genealogies if you're looking there at your scripture? How do you preach? Genealogies. How do you apply genealogies? And let's give it a try this morning. Beginning in Genesis 4, verse 16, the Bible presents two ancestral lines from Adam. The first is the line of Adam through Cain, is traced first, chapter 4, verse 16 through 24. We might call it the line of the ungodly. And then second is the line of Adam through Seth, and that's found in chapter 4, verse 25. Through chapter 5, verse 32, we will call that the line of the unworldly. And in the midst of each line, each genealogy, there is a pause with the seventh from Adam. Adam's great, 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 great grandson, if you will. At the seventh from Adam, it's as if the the writer tosses a straw into the wind to, to measure how things are, get a sense of how mankind was developing. Or I could say degenerating and digressing. In the ungodly line of Cain, the seventh from Adam is Lamech. You see it in chapter 4, verse 18, Lamech. In the unworldly line of Seth, the seventh from Adam is Enoch. You see that in chapter 5, verse 18. And we'll look at these two lines first. Number one, Cain's generations, the ungodly. Cain's generations, the ungodly, beginning in chapter 4, verse 16, after all of the events in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, that's Genesis 3, and after all of the circumstances surrounding Cain and Abel's altercation, you remember that Cain killed his brother Abel, murdered his brother Abel. Genesis 4, verse 16, this is where we're at, chapter 4, verse 16, the Bible says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, it's one thing for a man who has never known God, who is indifferent to To God or who is independent of God. But for a man like Cain to deliberately turn his back upon a God with whom he had dealt personally. It's the greatest of of tragedies. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 4 verse number 16. And folks when our life biographies are, are written may they not read like Cain's in verse 16. Reporting that we went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse number 17 there, if you're looking at it, introduces us to one of the great Bible trivia questions. Verse 17, where did Cain get his wife? Have you ever wondered that? At the historic Scopes trial in Tennessee in 1925, and if you aren't familiar with the Scopes trial, that famous trial in 1925, Tennessee law forbid the teaching of evolution in public schools at the time. But one teacher, John Scopes, insisted upon it, and he was charged with breaking the law. How times have changed, haven't they? Now the laws that you can't teach divine creationism in the public schools. But at any rate, William Jennings Bryan, the prosecutor who stood for the Christian faith, failed to answer the question about Cain's wife that was posed to him by the ACLU attorney Clarence Darrow. And I want you to follow this excerpt from the trial record as Darrow interrogates Brian. Question, did you ever discover where Cain got his wife? No, sir, I leave the agnostics to hunt for her. Question, you have never found out? Answer, I've never tried to find. You've never tried to find? No. The Bible says he got one, doesn't it? And the answer is yes, yes. Cain got a wife. It's Genesis 4, verse 17. It's open before you. Were there other people on the earth at that time? Answer, I cannot say. You cannot say, did that ever enter your consideration? Never bothered me. There were no others recorded, but Cain got a wife. That is what the Bible says. Where she came from, you do not know. And unfortunately, the world's press was focused on this trial. It's called the Scopes Monkey Trial, of course. Some of the theme was was over evolution and creation. But but what they heard has affected Christianity today because it was a public embarrassment for the defense of the truth at the time. I'll give you the answer this morning. It's in chapter 5, verse number 4. After he, this is Adam, begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. Here's the answer. During their lifetimes, Adam and Eve had many male and female children. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how many children were born to Adam and Eve, but considering their long lifespans, if you look at chapter 5, verse 5, Adam lived for nearly a millennia, 930 years. It's logical for us to know that that they had many children over those years. And remember, Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply back in chapter 1, verse 28. According to Jewish historian Josephus, tradition claimed that Adam had 33 sons and 23 daughters. So where did Cain get his wife? Cain most likely married one of his sisters. Now, of course, that raises additional moral and biological questions. Morally, remember that Abraham was married to his half sister and it wasn't until 400 years later in the days of Moses that God first forbid incestuous relationships biologically remember that it wasn't until the human race multiplied that the genetic mutations that were shared between offspring began producing greater deformities in their children and of course recognizing that today it is it is illegal for anyone who is biologically related to, to, to marry but we digress the focus of our study is the, the characteristics of the generations of Cain. And, and I want to suggest to you this morning that they were ungodly. Like Cain, his descendants were ungodly. First, they were indifferent to God. They were indifferent to God. Now, indifference is an apathetic neglect of something or someone. For example, I know, I know that eating junk food is bad for my health. But I am young, I am strong, I am good-looking, and the consequences of my poor eating habits are really no threat to me. I'm indifferent. I don't care about cholesterol or calories, and you can lecture me after the service if, if you want to. That's apathy or indifference, right? But then there's also independence, The generations of Cain, the ungodly, were indifferent to God, or I'm sorry, independent of God. And independence is an, an aggressive separation from something or someone. Of course, our own American heritage included a war for independence. And today, we are fiercely independent people. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. And so in both cases, whether it's indifference to God or independence of God, those are frightful attitudes to have. For God is the one who created us. God is the one to whom we are accountable, eternally accountable. And you say, but Pastor Matt, how do you know that the generations of Cain, the ungodly, were indifferent to and independent of God? Because in addition to what we've already read of Cain, I believe it's illustrated in the seventh from from Adam through Cain, the seventh generation. The genealogy here is interrupted to provide us a snapshot of that first culture. And the name is Lamech. Okay, so let's work there. Chapter four, look at verse number nineteen. Chapter four, verse well, in chapter four, verse number nineteen, you have Lamech here who's who's taking Two wives. There's a a, a lack of morality. We have polygamy introduced here. Verse twenty. Look there. It tells us of the wealth of money. There's livestock. Verse twenty-one. There's a refinement in the fine arts. There's music. I think the harp and the flute are mentioned. Verse twenty-two. There's advancement in manufacturing. Look at verse twenty-two. There's the instructor of every craftsman. Verses twenty-three and twenty-four tells us of violence and murder, where Lamech, the seventh from Adam, murders a man. Look at verse twenty-three. Then Lamech said to his wives, his two wives. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy sevenfold. So here's what's happened. Someone evidently has wronged Lamech, and, and I get it. I've been wronged. You've been wronged many times. The truth of the matter is I have wronged. I have wronged others. However, Lamech responded by murdering that man. What Lamech did was wrong, and he knew it, but he even boasted of it, and he compared himself to his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Cain. In the Greek translation there of of the Hebrew text at the end of verse 24, it reads 70 times 7. Does that sound familiar? It's as if Lamech's boast here stands in sharp contrast with the Lord's teaching on forgiveness. In Matthew 18, verse 22, we ought to forgive 70 times 7. Seven, But Lamech promised vengeance to anyone who would harm him or hurt him. V- vengeance far greater than promised by God to Cain back in chapter 4, verse 15. So the, the ancient world bore the hallmarks of a culture. A culture that sounds horribly familiar. Man was indifferent to God. They were independent of God. And folks, I think it's fair to say that today, America is indifferent to God and independent of God. And we could spend a great amount of time identifying these very same characteristics in our culture. It took seven generations from Adam to Lamech. There, as we just read. In verse 25, though, the narrative returns back to Adam and Eve with the birth and the line of another son, Seth. So we had the line of Cain, Cain's generation's, the ungodly. And now look at verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born. And he named him Enosh, and men began to call on the name of the Lord. Okay, there is a very marked difference here identified in the line of Seth. Whereas Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, remember that in chapter 4, verse 16? Now, in the line of Seth, verse 26, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And for this reason, I call the, the generation or the line of Seth, Seth's generations, the unworldly. Seth's generations, the ungodly. I'm sorry, Cain's generations, the ungodly. Seth's generations, the unworldly. And there's a marked difference in this genealogical record. There's a change. The record of Cain's generations included human achievement and accomplishment. The record of Seth's generations now only says that they lived a certain number of years, and then it says that they died. That's so interesting to me for, as you browse, browse chapter 5 for a moment and see how that one lived for a specific number of years and then they died over and over again. In the line of Cain, it never said that they lived. For in truth, their lives were hollow and they were empty, empty. And they were meaningless. It also says in the line of Cain, it never says that they died. And I believe it's because maybe heaven had no interest in their death. But of the Sethites, the unworldly generation in chapter 5, it's recorded over and over again that they lived and they died. And all through chapter 5, we hear the tolling of the bell. They died and they died and they died. It's almost as if God is proving to Satan, to the devil, that he's a liar. Remember what Satan promised Eve in the garden? You will not surely die. And they died, and they died, and they died. Satan was wrong. You say, but pastor, wouldn't it it make more sense if the ungodly line of Cain, Cain's generation, why don't we note their death? Why is it that we're identifying the death of the line of, of, of Seth? After all, the wages of sin is death. But I think, it, I think that God took note of the death of the Sethites because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And death was for them not the end but the beginning. You see, they had not fully lived in this world for they were unworldly. And therefore, their death was notable. And as a representation, as an illustration, the seventh now from Adam through Seth was Enoch, all right? Look at verse 21. And Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah, and after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. There's a biography. He walked with God. You're looking for an epitaph for your tombstone, your gravestone someday? How about this? He walked with God. But then it says that he was not, for God took him. And what is happening here, not a lengthy biography, but a snapshot that I believe represents the line of Seth. Hebrews 11 and Jude affirm that Enoch walked with God, and in a similar experience to that of Elijah in 2 Kings 2, God called Enoch home to heaven uh, to to be with him apart from death. And so in both the cases of, of Cain, the ungodly, and Seth, the unworldly, We know that both cases, those generations were depraved. They were, after all, from the line of Adam, and thus they inherited a sin nature, Romans chapter 5. I'm not suggesting that all of Cain's descendants were perfect heathens or all that Seth's descendants were perfectly righteous, but but I think we could make a generalization as I have done. There was a difference in these two lines, these two generations, as noted at the seventh from from Adam. But then Genesis 5 finishes with, with Noah. And we know this account well. Noah was the only one, Noah and his family preserved through the flood. But in a play on words, I I, I would like to describe this final culture as as this number three, man's degeneration. His degeneration, the unruly. And we come to chapter six, where we find a summarization of the anti-deluvian culture, the first cultures and the characteristics of those first cultures. Let me read Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, it came to pass, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously, and the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The degeneration, the unruly, naturally Letter A, there was a population explosion from verse number one. And do you realize what can happen in 1,500 years of procreation, especially when people lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, had many more children than is common today? I read one source that suggested the human population before the flood in this antediluvian period could have been greater than it is today, upwards of 9 billion people. So there was a population explosion. But supernaturally, there was a perverted exploitation. And the million-dollar question is, who are these sons of God who married the daughters of men in verse number 2 to procreate these giants on the earth in verse number 4? And so I'll give us some help this this morning on the back of your notes I've copied from Bible commentator Alan Ross. He says, many have suggested that the sons of God were the godly line of Seth. And the daughters of men were the Canites; these two lines that we've just looked at. But this does not do justice to the terminology or context. Others view the sons of God as angels, as in Job one verse six, who cohabitated with women on earth. This, however, conflicts with Matthew twenty two thirty. Matthew twenty two thirty tells us that there is no marriage among angels, and uh, angels don't have reproductive biology. Continue, Alan Ross says the incident is one of hubris the proud overstepping of bounds. Here it applies to the sons of God, a lusty, powerful lot, striving for fame and fertility. They were probably powerful rulers who were controlled, indwelt by fallen angels. It may be that fallen angels left their habitation and inhabited bodies of human despots and warriors, the mighty ones of the earth. So, so here's the, the conclusion that, that I would agree, I'm compelled to agree, that the, the sons of God, here in Genesis 6, verse 2, are, are not, they're not, Divine. They're demon controlled. There was supernatural influence driving them. And over the centuries, pagan cults have used this very text to argue that immortality is achieved by immorality. This is a difficult text. In fact, there are many difficult texts in the scripture. They're hard to understand. And It's okay if we don't understand everything. In fact, it was Mark Twain who says, it's not the things I don't understand that bother me. It's the things I do understand that bother me because we're accountable to those those things. But really, I want to finish here by examining what caused God, what compelled God to so greatly judge these first cultures. Humanity in this first 1,500 years. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man with whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. Look at verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence, verse 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Folks, the wickedness of man in these first cultures was not just externally observed by God. It was internally observed by God, meaning this. God saw man's hearts. Folks, don't forget that God sees our hearts. We may be sophisticated. We may be civilized in our modern Western society. However, God sees our hearts. And in that case, as it is today, man's heart, verse number 5, was evil continually. And what was the evil of man's heart in these first cultures? It wasn't immorality or idol worship that was mentioned here. It is violence. If you look there at verses 11 and 13. Folks, we too live in a culture like the days before Noah, a culture of, of violence. And I was tempted to, to bring you all the numbers of violent crime in our nation. It's going in the wrong direction, you understand. I could bring you the, the statistics of the violence. I, I was tempted to pontificate about the efficacy of gun laws or not, to talk of defunding the police or funding the police. And, but I, I just have one statistic for you this morning. It is estimated by the experts that the average young person will view 200,000 acts of violence on TV by the time they're 18 years old. I'm not necessarily preaching against TV as much as I'm pointing out that our culture is saturated with violence. And if it's not seen on TV, God sees it in our hearts. So that gun control and police funding and whatever other efforts we might make ultimately are going to fail. Because man's heart is evil continually. Then and now. And that grieved the heart of God in chapter 6, verse number 6. When it says that God repented, it doesn't mean that he changed his mind. He's mindless. It means that he was sorrowful. Verse 7 there, if you're looking there, reveals God's decision. And he determined to destroy them all, save Noah and his family. These are the characteristics of human culture then and now. So, folks, what do we do? How do we conclude this morning, after reading of these genealogies, the ungodly line of Cain and the unworldly line of Seth, the degeneration of everyone who was unruly? I would offer us two takeaways this morning. First, this is in your notes, but it's something we need to think on. We need to pray for God's mercy. to preserve us from God's judgment. Because we too, like those in the antediluvian period, deserve God's judgments. America has merited God's judgments because the evil of our hearts continually. We need to pray for God's mercy. Secondly, we need to look for the Lord's return. Because we know... That God is going to destroy the world as he did in the days of Noah, not with a deluge of water, not as in a flood of water in Genesis 6, but in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both earth and all the works that are in it will be burned up. It will be a flood of fire. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This evening, in fact, I'm going to preach on heaven, just heaven, as we look forward to to that. But folks, the characteristics of the first cultures in Genesis 3 through 6 are horrifically familiar to us. And as they invited God's judgments, then they do so as well today. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your holy word that tells us of man's condition then and now and in the future. We thank you for your holy word that teaches us from where we came and what we are. We thank you for your holy word that also tells us of the reward we can have if we know Jesus Christ. And God, this morning, I, on behalf of our church, on behalf of our nation, on behalf of of so many whose heart is evil continually, we repent. We plead for your mercy and we look for your return to judge righteously on this earth. In Jesus' name I pray.